The following is broadcast by Brookside Meeting House Companies, LLC, doing business as Forget-Me-Not Ancestry. morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Jane Wilcox, and this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Welcome to the show. This morning, uh, we have a different topic than usual. Uh, We're looking at uh, plagiarism and fabrication, genealogical landmines. My guests are Judy Russell, the legal genealogist, and Robert C. Anderson, who is the director of the Great Migration Project uh, with the New England Historic Genealogical Society. Uh, both have been on the show before, uh, so uh, some of the questions that I start usually start with, I'm not going to ask. Uh, I will refer you to their uh, uh, interviews uh, that happened for Bob. The last time he was on the show was uh, July 15th in 2015. And then uh, Judy was on the show uh, talking about colonial American women and the law on uh, May 1st of 2013. Um, so the, the introductory questions, please refer to those shows. But we are going to start today uh, just uh, briefly having Judy and Bob tell us just a little bit about themselves just to get us going. So Judy, let's start with you, um, kind of like your background, where you were born, raised, your careers. Well, I'm I'm a Colorado native. My father is a German immigrant, so I'm first generation on my father's side, but my mother's family goes back to colonial America, so I've got lots of different mixes of, of genealogical interests. Um, I was basically raised in the Northeast, in, in New Jersey, and have lived around the United States and even in Europe. 
So lots of different bits and pieces, and my genealogical interest basically comes from my mother's side initially with the Scots-Irish and the storytellers. And then how about the legal part of the legal genealogist? Oh, that's the little minor matter of having a law degree from Rutgers Law School in New Jersey, and I taught at Rutgers for more than 25 years. All right, so all right. And Bob, how about you? that legal education into uh, the genealogical world. Okay, thank you. <laughs> and and Bob? Uh, I was born in uh, Bellows Falls, Vermont, and I consider that home. I actually live about 20 miles from there right now. But I've lived all over the place. Um, I started life uh, as a child of the Sputnik generation, wanting to be a rocket scientist, but discovered through various means that I was not a laboratory person, that I was a library person. Uh, got into genealogy in 1972, relatively late compared to some of my peers. Um, and in the process discovered uh, that although I too have uh, a, my father is second generation Swedish, my mother is all potato famine Irish, but I discovered that through my father's mother's mother, I have one little strand of old line Yankee ancestry, which is what got me interested in 17th century genealogy and led eventually to the Great Migration Study Project. Um, and so that's what I've been doing for the for the last 40 years. Okay. All right. And so today we're talking about uh, plagiarism and fabrication. And I, I should say that the inspiration for this show uh, came in the spring. Uh, there uh, was a focus on uh, plagiarism in the uh, world of genealogy. And I thought it would be a, a great topic uh, to talk about, you know, what is plagiarism? And then I was thinking what, what other, I would call them a landmine, uh, might go along with plagiarism, and I was thinking about uh, uh, the fabrication that has happened in the world of genealogy uh, in the early 1900s, uh, also known as fraudulent genealogies, and so that's how the show kind of came together today with uh, plagiarism and fabrication. Um, so Judy, what is your interest in plagiarism? Well, you know, it's twofold, really. My my particular interests are, number one, in genealogical standards, and number two, in genealogical ethics. And those two really feed together when it comes to the question of plagiarism, plagiarism being, by definition, passing off somebody else's work as if it were your own. So, number one, if we're passing off somebody else's work without citing our sources, we're violating every standard of genealogical research because one of the keys is citing our sources. And then ethically, we're not giving credit to the people on whose shoulders we're really standing. So from every possible perspective, plagiarism is a bad idea. It is undermining everything we want to do as genealogists. In addition to the uh, genealogy world, where else are we going to find plagiarism? What, what form know, the, does it take? Oh, it is, it is absolutely endemic in the academic community. You know, kids 
um, when you're researching on the Internet and you just copy and paste a whole bunch of stuff and pop it into a report and turn it in to your 10th grade English teacher, that's where it really gets started. And, and there's not a lot of, of emphasis and a lot of attention on independent thinking and independent analysis. So a lot in the academic community, we've seen it in, um, in scholarship, we've seen it in journalism. It's a real problem. So would you say the Internet has created more of a problem with plagiarism? I think it's, it, in one sense, it certainly made it a whole lot easier to do the copy-paste routine. Back when I was a kid in the dark ages where you had to type things out and couldn't easily copy and paste, it, it, you kind of had a little bit more, it was easier to stop and think about what you were writing. Where today, you know, control V, control C, you got everything you need to, to just take somebody else's work and put it right into your own. And I think an awful lot of, of this copy pasting is isn't intentional. Nobody is is setting out deliberately to well, <laughs> most of the genealogical community, I think, isn't setting out deliberately to steal somebody else's work. There's a thought that, well, we're just sharing. It's not a problem. But, yeah, it really is a problem. Okay. And then what are some examples uh, in, in both the, the world in general, in notorious examples, and then uh, genealogy world? Well, you know, there there have been some some very dramatic examples just in a couple of of recent situations there was a a young harvard student who published um a a very acclaimed bit of juvenile writing um you know adolescent teen lit type of of work just a couple of years ago and was almost immediately um found to have copied large portions of the characterization and the dialogue from earlier works that she had read as a child. So her career and her work was immediately attacked and then ultimately withdrawn by the publisher. Uh, We've had Pulitzer Prize-winning researchers whose work has been um, criticized and, and in fact withdrawn. We had one who had to resign from the Pulitzer Committee for having copied the work of, of others. So plagiarism, this business of copying other people's work without giving credit is, is, a, is a problem across the board. In our community, we've had some very recent um, situations where where genealogical authors have uh, been detected copying word for word, item for item from published genealogical works. Again, without credit, without attribution, and that by definition is plagiarism. Okay. All right. Thank you. And then uh, let's 
shift now to fabrication. Bob, what's your interest in fabrication? Uh, I think my interest in this area comes out uh, is sort of the flip side of my interest in genealogical methodology. Um, I think the last time you had me on the program was when we were talking about my, my book on problem solving. And uh, the point of that book is to study the steps that you take in proving a pedigree. And um, you take those steps in reverse or use those same steps in a different way to prove a, a fabrication of a pedigree. Um, and it all generated, it was back uh, in the 80s when I was living in Salt Lake City, and uh, Gordon Remington and I uh, met for lunch frequently and talked over all sorts of genealogical problems, and we'd run into the this gentleman, Gustav Anjou, whom we'll talk about later, and we just got to talking about it, and uh, and so Gordon and I went to town on it, and um, first with Anjou and then with others, and tried to figure out just how he did what he did, how it was that he could hoodwink people. And you, so actually, let's talk about Anjou now. So, you, what did you find about Anjou? Um, well, Gordon found that Anjou had fabricated himself, um, that he had a very ordinary uh, upbringing, a very ordinary background. And uh, when he came to the, to the States, he was born in, in, uh, in Europe. When he came to the States, he created a whole new self. He created a name for himself. Uh, he claimed uh, a degree from uh, Uppsala University in Sweden, the oldest and most prestigious Swedish university, um, and used that phony uh, persona to uh, build and promote his, his phony pedigrees. Um, in uh, the library at Salt Lake and in many genealogical libraries, you will find these beautiful, beautiful books that Anjou produced a century and more ago. Um, they were uh, typewritten at the time, but they were done on these, this beautiful paper with lovely red uh, margins and all sorts of things, and they just looked very impressive. Um, but there had been plenty of evidence before Gordon and I got into it that uh, there were problems with them. But... Um, the problem with, with a good fabricator is that they hide the seams in their, in their stitching very well. And uh, so it takes a lot of work to, to uncover just how it was they go about because they, they hide their, their phony material uh, in a large amount of, of good material. Um, so I don't know. Do we want to go into the, the details of just how Anjou did it now, or do you want to save that for later? Go ahead. Actually, I was just going to ask that question. How, how did, as a detective, how did you detect Anju's fabrication? Well, it, it's um, first of all, it's like everything we do in genealogy. It's pattern recognition and seeing things that that just don't look quite right, that don't that don't quite match the way a good pedigree is put together. And so, what you will see is. Um, Unlikely connections, large jumps from these. We're dealing here entirely with um, late uh, late medieval, early modern England, with the ancestries of, of early American settlers, and so we're dealing with sixteenth, um, seventeenth, and earlier centuries uh, uh, records in England. And so, when you see a pedigree that uh, that let's say has four or five generations in um, 
in Lancashire, up in the north of England, and then suddenly jumps uh, to Suffolk um, in the southeast of England. Uh, that's not impossible, certainly, but it's unusual and unlikely. And so you begin to suspect there's a problem. But that in itself is not enough to prove that there's a problem. And so uh, essentially it means you just have to go back and try to try to check uh, all of um, all of the of the fabricator's uh, work, which means checking every one of his sources. Um, this is akin to the to the issue in um, in good science, where you expect an experiment to be reproducible, that someone else can go back and follow your same footsteps and arrive at the same result. A monstrous topic in the scientific literature right now. And of course, we're dealing with a historical um, subject but matter, but you still should be able to reproduce the earlier uh, workers' uh, procedures. And so it just meant, uh, as I say, looking to to uh, reproduce every one of the of the bits of evidence that they had produced. And what you eventually find with Anjou and with many of the others, each one is a little different in the way they do it, but with Anjou, um, that he would uh, bury you in dozens and even hundreds of uh, perfectly good and valid documents and citations, and then at a critical point in the pedigree, slip in uh, an invented um, uh, will or other document. And, of course, that would either have a phony citation or no citation at all. And it's the inability to... to uh, to find that document uh, connected with the fact that it's just the critical one that shows the jump from, say, Lancashire to Suffolk that leads you to indicate that the that the pedigree is bad. Now, um, had Anjou's fabrication been discovered before you and Gordon Remington were, were discussing this, or were, were you uh, two who... No, it, it, it had been pretty well known. Um, but I don't, no one had, had gone into the detail that Gordon and I did. Uh, I believe it's in Gordon's article, or perhaps in mine. The the uh, I should back up and say that when Gordon and I got into this in the late 80s, Gordon was the editor of the Genealogical Journal, the magazine of the Utah Genealogical Association. And he used this work that we did on Anjou to build an entire issue on the subject of, of phony pedigrees. And so he did the... the, he did the um, uh, biographical side on Anjou himself, and I did the an analysis of, of how he put together a phony pedigree. But as we both pointed out, uh, George McCracken certainly, um, who was the editor, uh, second editor of the American Genealogist in succession to Donald Lyons Jacobus, had written about Anjou, but only very briefly and not uh, and not in the detail that Gordon and I did. So no, it was known. It was known, but uh, but the, but it was not well enough publicized to prevent people from who who stumbled on one of these books for, for thinking it was a, a pretty good piece of work. Okay. And then in let, let's uh, broaden our scope now in general. What are some other examples of fabrication? Uh, not just genealogy, but then also in, include some other genealogy examples. Yeah. Um, another person who's done quite a bit of work in this area is Paul Reed, who's another genealogist who lives in Salt Lake City and, and inhabits the uh, the Family History Library out there. And he has published uh, two very good articles, both in the American Genealogist, identifying the, the, the very bad work of two other people. And he did a piece in uh, 1994 
on the ancestry of uh, John Whitney of Watertown, Massachusetts, and Henry Whitney of Connecticut, and demonstrated that both the pedigrees for those people were both uh, uh, either just wrong or completely fabricated. And in the case of the Henry Whitney one, he talks about a woman named Harriet Bainbridge de Salis, who was working in the 1870s. And she was even more um, blatant about it than was than was Anjou. Uh, as I say, Anjou could put together one of these pedigrees and only have one or two phony pieces to tie together the, the parts. Um, in this one pedigree for Henry Whitney, Paul was able to to uh, discover that she had created 12 phony wills to paste together uh, her bed genealogy. She was discovered almost immediately. Uh, her unfortunate client published a book on Henry Whitney, including her work, and then almost immediately after publication, he became aware that there were problems, and he hired uh, Colonel Chester, who was a brilliant uh, English genealogist at the time, to revisit uh, Ms. DeSalis' work. And it was uh, it was Chester's um, work that uncovered what she'd done, and he in fact forced her publicly to state that she would never take another client in the United States again. So she was shut down uh, pretty quickly. Um, the other one that Paul wrote about, again in the American Genealogist in 1999, was Horatio Gates Summerby who was the earliest of these people. He was Horatio Gates Summerby, worked in the middle of the 19th century um, and uh, spent quite a bit of time in England uh, working at his trade. And he published hundreds of pedigrees. Many of them appear in Henry Bond's History of Watertown, Massachusetts, uh, which is filled with material from Summerby's work. And uh, he was, uh, in Paul's words, not as subtle as Anjou was. Um, and he would uh, just put something in without a, even a hint of a citation. He wouldn't even say what where a will was found or something like that. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of his work is still out there and is still cited uh, to this day. Um, so those are at least two others, and there are many more. In fact, uh, I spoke of George McCracken um, earlier in the when he was editor of, of the American Genealogist, he started it was it was not it was a project that didn't get very far, but he started what he uh, he being a Latin scholar called his Index Expurgatorius, a list of authors to be avoided and expunged from the record. He just uh, unfortunately that didn't project didn't get very far, but it was the beginnings of uh, a more organized attack on some of these fraudulent uh, pedigree mongers. That's that's interesting. That was going to be one of my questions uh, a little bit later on. So this is actually plagiarism and uh, fabrication from what Judy and, and Bob are saying is, is fascinating. Um, we are going to take a break. Uh, this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told, and we'll be right back.
welcome back. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. As you're listening on Blog Talk Radio, you will see a follow button on your computer screen. If you press that button, you'll receive an email letting you know that the show is going on the air, what the topic is, and who the guest is. You'll also see a bunch of social media buttons on the Blog Talk page. Please share the Forget-Me-Not Hour with your friends and family on your social media. Uh, you'll also see uh, Forget-Me-Not Hour archives. Um, we've been on the air for uh, just over five years, and there are wonderful shows uh, going back to the beginning that are timeless. Um, catch both Judy and Bob's shows. Uh, one from Actually, Bob's been on for a couple of years, and Judy from uh, 2013. Take advantage of those shows. And you can also listen to the Forget-Me-Not Hour on iTunes when you are on the go, and that is under Jane E. Wilcox. So today we are talking about plagiarism and fabrication, and I call them genealogical landmines uh, because as Judy and Bob were talking about what plagiarism is, what fabrication is, often you don't know that you're stepping on them. And so I have, have an example um, I was doing research on a Connecticut family at the Connecticut uh, State Library in Hartford. And I was reading a 1990 genealogy uh, uh, written uh, by this one author. And I was wondering how she knew what she was saying in this genealogy. She didn't cite sources. She did mention a 1902 genealogy on the family. So I pulled that from the shelf, and I started reading that, and I saw that the 1990 author had basically plagiarized the entire first chapter from the 1902 author and added maybe a little new information. So, Judy, let's, let's start with you. How would we know that we're stepping on a landmine like that? Well, that's one of the reasons why each individual researcher must go behind the document that we're looking at and try to get as close to the original source material as possible. Part of the problem is we don't know what the sources of our sources are. And so much of what's been written about genealogy, about family history over the years is, it may not be deliberate fraud in the sense that Bob is talking about, but it's family lore and undocumented information and the feel-good stories about our families that have been passed on without ever being checked. So getting behind the source to the original documents is, is really the ultimate protection for a genealogist in avoiding some of these problems. You know, you, you look at the, the, I look at my family, I descend from a Baker family and a Buchanan family in North Carolina, and I can, I can almost hear Bob sitting there chuckling on these, because both the Baker and the Buchanan families were struck by what were the, um, the hoaxes in the early 20th century. In, in the Baker family, there was this hoax out of Philadelphia where all you had to do was prove that you were descended from this Jacob Baker and you were in line 
to join in an inheritance that had to do with property under the main train station in Philadelphia. And every bit of it was a hoax. In the Buchanan case, it was Trinity Church in New York City. That land was all associated, supposedly, with the Buchanan family, and all you had to do was trace your ancestry, and you would share in this inheritance. So there was a motivation to come up with documentation that probably wasn't all that well documented, and yet it's been passed on and integrated into people's family histories. We need to get past that and get back to original sources. So, Judy, do we need to find original sources for everything that we are working on? To the extent that it's possible, yes. Because even the very, very best of researchers can make mistakes. And we may see something in an original document that that another researcher simply doesn't recognize. So the only way, absolutely the only way to avoid these kinds of landmines is to look at what it was that created the record in the first place. Okay. And Bob, do you have anything to add? Yeah. I uh, First of all, I, I'm in full agreement with everything uh, Judy has said. Um, and I just point out that those hoaxes of the of a century ago where the where the uh, Victorian equivalent of our Nigerian prince on the internet who wants to uh, <laughs> wants your bank account. Um, I, I have two uh, two points to make. Um, first of all, just in, in agreement with Judy, um, 20 years ago I had the pleasure of of working on a thing called the uh, genealogical data model. Um, it was a um, very detailed attempt to to uh, sort of build a flowchart for how genealogical research is done. This was to be in support of the software developers who are building genealogical programs. And we addressed this very point, of course, and one of the mantras we came up with, one of the things that we, each session that we discussed is we would remind ourselves on this just this point that your conclusions are my evidence. In other words, when I encounter someone else's work, uh, I don't just swallow those conclusions whole. I take it as another piece of evidence that I'm going to analyze just as, as seriously as I would a an original source or uh, any other thing I, I encounter. Um, and the second point I would like to make, I don't know if this is totally on point, but it's, I think it's an important methodological point nevertheless, um, and uh, is that uh, in... I don't know, of course, the specific uh, in your example of the 1990 genealogist who used a 1902 genealogy, but so many of those genealogies that were produced uh, over a century ago, what we sometimes refer to as the golden age of genealogy, when all the big massive family books were published in the 1880s to the 1920s, let us say, um, of course, methodology wasn't as developed as it is now and the the requirement to cite sources wasn't what it is nowadays. And so some would cite their sources and some wouldn't. But what you'll encounter in those books of a, of a century and more ago frequently is many, many um, vital records for people dispersed all across the country. If, if it's a volume um, 
covering the descendants of a New England or a New York or a Virginia family. By the 1900s, of course, people will be scattered all over the country. And so you'll find all these vital records, and you might have trouble um, finding an original source for them. And what many of those compilers did in that period was to do their work by correspondence, and they would identify people in a family line and write to them and say, what do you know about your family? And in would come all this information uh, from states in the Midwest and the West that would not have had um, uh, vital record registration at the time of interest. And frequently, these records would come from a family Bible or some other source of that sort. They wouldn't be cited as such, but that was generally the source. And so uh, you have this problem that this material, there's, there's no, there are no records to support it, and yet many of it, much of it turns out to be very, very reliable. And so if you can discover that that 1902 genealogist did their work by correspondence, it's unlikely you'll find that correspondence. But if you know that's how it do, was done, even though you can't find it original, you can have a little bit more confidence that that record uh, might actually be uh, be a valuable record. That's just a, a, a standard bit of, of analysis of your sources and so on. Okay. All right. And I, I wanted to add one more example for a hoax, which I'm, I'm working uh, with a client now. And uh, I learned through the course of this research um, that – uh, there were hoaxes that linked back to money in the Bank of Holland um, in the 1890s. And there is co was correspondence happening uh, in the 1890s in this one family. Uh, the legend is that there were three brothers uh, who came to uh, America. One went back <laughs> and left a fortune for the uh, descendants of the two brothers because he was mad at the two brothers and the the, uh, the one brother supposedly died in the late 1700s um, and so the the family you know they're writing back and forth there's a series of letters that my client has from her grandfather um, trying to document the uh, ancestry uh, going back to uh, one of the two brothers who stayed in the, the States and letters to Holland trying to claim the money that, that supposedly was in the Bank of Holland. Um, the letters have some interesting facts um, that help me, is helping me with the research on her family, but most of it, I told her we can, we can put the legend to rest. <laughs> because this really it looks like it's a hoax uh, so I just wanted to add that as well and there were other examples of the the uh, for Dutch families with money in the bank in Holland so um, for uh, Judy and Bob are there resources that we can look at books articles uh, websites that that can help us sift through um, maybe some notorious examples, or at least alert us to some some things that are out there. And, and Bob, let's start with you. Yeah, I'm not aware of a whole lot that's been organized. I've already referred to the uh, the issue of the genealogical journal that um, that Gordon put together, and I think that's a good starting point because it's although he and I did our Anjou articles, there are uh, four or five other articles with examples from other. Uh, other colonies and other time periods and so on, and they they give a good overview of it. Um, one other website that I came up with is in Wikitree, uh, and it's the title of it is Categ Category Frauds and Fabrications, but it's only got five examples. 
and two of them I've already talked about, the Gustav Anjou one and the Summerbee one. There's another one on here that I'm looking at that I am familiar with, and it's called the Ramon Myers Tingley fraud. And this gets to a real extreme of the of the um, the the type. Um, Ramon Myers Tingley only published a couple of books, and uh, when I write about it, I do it frequently in a joking mode because it's just so obviously wrong. But what he did was just he just would in covering a particular time and place would just throw every record for a given surname and somehow mash them up all into one family uh, and provided no citations whatsoever. So his is a such an extreme. He did not try to cover his tracks a little bit. And I don't know that that even constitutes a fraud. That may be more self-delusion than anything else. And I think that's true in all of this, that, for instance, that uh, I'll tread on Judy's territory a little bit. I think a lot of what we call plagiarism is technically, as she says, is plagiarism, but I think a lot of people um, aren't even aware of the ethics involved and and will copy stuff down without any awareness that it's not the right thing to do. And it's the same on the fabrication side, that there are, there's a difference, I think, between someone who is consciously out there creating something and creating something for money and someone like Tingley, who, so far as I know, was not a professional, didn't take money for it, who's just making stuff up and is uh, just a bad genealogist and not a fraudulent genealogist. So, Bob, following up on on what you just said in terms of people just don't know any better, how I, I remember, uh, I don't know if it was in high school or grade school, you know, that, that my teachers told me plagiarism is bad. So, right. so you know, what, you know, where, where are are we going to learn of, of the ethics of, about plagiarism and fabrication? Well, I'm not sure I have an answer to that, but I would suggest that that's, I don't uh, know that I learned that lesson from a teacher at an early stage in my life. Um, I think that maybe comes with a more advanced level of, of education when you get into academia as such. But I just think that there, that there is always a, a level of people who just are not, uh, not tuned in to what is the right thing to do and what is the wrong thing to do. I'll say uh, alternatively to that, though, and, and I, this is a point I had written down and wanted to cover, and this may not be exactly the right point, but I will say that all of the dis- examples of fraud that I've talked about are 100 years ago and more. And one of the reasons they were able to get away with it is because, um, especially with Summerbee in the 1850s, there were no indexes, there were no finding aids, and of course no uh, nothing even approaching the internet, and so they could get away with inventing these things with considerable confidence that no one was going to catch them, at least in their lifetimes. And just the the growth of the genealogical world, the growth of of um, the way we do things, and bringing it down more recently, the improvements in genealogical education have made, I think these fraudulent things less likely than they were before. I don't know that that's affect plagiarism as much, but um, I was involved in the early, the earliest of these national conferences in the 80s, and um, I'm just amazed I'd, uh, at, after 30-odd years of how much more educated the genealogical public is in general, not just in terms of fabrication and plagiarism, but how much more educated they are and aware of these problems than they were 30 and 35 years ago. So um, I think that's part of the general 
general genealogical education that is making these things uh, easier to detect and less likely to occur. Okay, thank you. And uh, Judy, do you have anything to add uh, for you know, what can alert us? I, I do, and we do have some great resources that have, have become available. And I agree with Bob that we're, we're getting to the point where detecting fraud uh, and exposing fraud is a lot easier. Where we're having some trouble is understanding what plagiarism is, why we shouldn't do it. I mean, just yesterday on Facebook, um, a genealogist posted that an ancestry member had made digital copies of her blog posts and attached them as images in, in that member's tree without attribution, which, of course, is plagiarism. That's when you're taking somebody else's work and putting it on there as if it's your own. So how do you know what is plagiarism? Sometimes we just don't get it. A couple of good resources. One is Elizabeth Schoen Mills' website, Evidence Explained. It's a free website, lots of information on there, and she has a quick lesson, quick lesson 15, on plagiarism, copyrights, copy wrongs, and using other people's work. Really good explanation of how it is we do and don't properly use other people's um, information and their work. The National Genealogical Society magazine ran an article a couple of years ago written by an Illinois genealogist named Debbie Mizala called Stop Thief, a, a primer on plagiarism and an explanation of what it is and how we get ourselves involved in it and how we can avoid it. The National Genealogical Society's own standards and guidelines on ethics, including standards for sharing information and standards for using information, talk about crediting other people's works. And, of course, genealogy standards themselves, uh, both genealogy standards, the book as published by the Board for Certification of Genealogists, and some book called what? Elements of Genealogical Analysis by one Robert Charles Anderson. It all talks about citing sources, crediting the work of other people, and being able to say, I agree with this and I don't agree with that, and here's why. So that getting to those original sources and attaching them to the right people that's at the heart of what we do as genealogists. And when we get to those original sources, that avoids unreasonable and unfair grabbing of the work of other people. Okay, thank you. So we are going to take a break. Uh, coming up, uh, we're going to be talking about transcription forgery, and copyright. Uh, so that's uh, coming up in the last third of the Forget-Me-Not Hour. So we will be right back.
Welcome back. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. We will be back on the first Wednesday of the month uh, for the New York-related show. Uh, that is July 6th at 10 o'clock in the morning. My, Frank, uh, my guest will be Frank J. Doherty. We're going to be talking about his series of uh, books called Settlers of the Beekman Patent. Uh, again, that's July 6th at 10 o'clock. And then the third Wednesday of the month, uh, on July 20th, at a time to be determined, uh, my guest will be Helen V. Smith, joining us from Australia. We're going to be talking about her book uh, called Google, The Genealogist's Friend. Actually, I should say books, um, because we're also going to be talking about her book, uh, Death Certificates and Archaic Medical Terms. Uh, that should be a fun show about archaic medical terms. Again, uh, that is on July 20th at a time to be determined um, with Helen V. Smith. Uh, also, uh, coming up in July, on uh, July 17th, I am going to be speaking at the Women's Rights National Historical Park in Seneca Falls, New York, uh, for convention days. I'm going to be speaking uh, in the afternoon twice. Uh, at 1 o'clock, I'm going to uh, be giving my Tale of Woe talk, uh, a Tale of Woe, an 18th century woman's story. And then at 2.30, I'm going to be uh, giving Forget-Me-Not, Remembering Our Grandmother's Stories. Um, so if you are in western New York on that weekend, uh, please come out. It's a, it's a several-day event for convention days at the Women's Rights National Historical Park. If you have questions for upcoming guests, uh, if you have sh uh, show ideas or feedback for the show, please contact me. You can find me at janeewilcox.com. So uh, today we're continu continuing our conversation on plagiarism and fabrication. Um, we have some related uh, topics as well. So I was thinking about uh, transcriptions. And I know working with a lot of the, the transcribers of uh, church records here in the Hudson Valley, that there are more reliable transcribers than others. Um, Vosberg is my favorite transcriber uh, because he basically does everything verbatim. Um, there are other transcribers that I, when I look at their transcriptions and then go back to the originals as uh, Judy and Bob have, have been advocating, I see that there are errors um, and even some things that have been left out. Um, another uh, example is uh, Charles Manwaring, uh, who is a, a great uh, abstractor. He's, he did uh, Hartford probate court minutes. But when I went back to the original minutes, I found that he left out some important bits of information from these minutes. So uh, let's start with Judy. How, how do we know who these reliable transcribers and abstractors are? Well, the reality is that, that even the very best of transcribers or abstractors can overlook something or, um, you know, impose their own understanding on on a situation unintentionally so you want people who are local you want people who know the local community you want people who've established a reputation for excellence and thoroughness but you have to understand that even the best can make a mistake an example in my own family is is in western north carolina there's a fabulous local 
uh, society and and their individuals know the families, know the history, know the locality, and read a particular set of court minutes as a particular man in my family, Richard Baker, being named the administrator of the estate of his mother, Mrs. Ann Baker. Well, when you read the original, I don't see how they read it as Mrs. Ann Baker. It didn't read that way to me, and I went and got the underlying documents, and it turned out it wasn't Mrs. Ann. It was J-O-S-M, so Josias M. It was Richard's son, not Richard's mother. And this was these were good people who knew the area and knew the family, and they make mistakes. So we've got to understand that, that there's always going to be an error factor if you're not dealing with the original yourself. And Bob, do you have anything to add? Yeah, a couple of couple of points. Um, first of all, with regard to man wearing, I agree with what you, what you said. Um, but there's the difference, of course, between an abstract and a verbatim transcript, and that's, of course, uh, just as Judy said, that the people, different people, are going to see different things. And the problem with an abstract is that you are, by definition, not putting in everything, and how you decide what uh, is in and what is out um, can be. Uh, influenced by your own biases and your own interests and so on. So I, I would obviously rather see a full transcript than a uh, than an abstract. Uh, but as, as Judy has pointed out, even a full transcript can be wrong. Uh, I don't know of any way to identify uh, straight away what is, what is good and what is bad. You have to uh, test it yourself. Um, reputation is something. For instance, uh, Fred Dorman, our, our Virginia expert, uh, published dozens and dozens of volumes of um, abstracts and extracts from Virginia court records and other Virginia sources. And just by virtue of his long experience and reputation, we know that those are reliable. They're not going to be 100% perfect, but they are, they are going to be reliable. Um, another point Judy made that I would definitely uh, agree with is the um, having people with local knowledge do those transcripts back in the early days, back in the, again, around 1980 or so, when the business of, um, of producing transcripts of census, uh, uh, sorry, indexes to the censuses was being, uh, uh, was, was very active. Um, we, of course, had uh, corporations who were doing census indexes for the whole country, state by state and so on. And uh, there are many, many articles you'll find in the various state journals complaining about inaccuracies in those things. And I remember at a conference in Indianapolis, Willard Heiss, one of the great Indiana experts, giving a lecture, the title of which was, Is Better Than Nothing Good Enough? And Willard being who he was, his answer was that better than nothing is not good enough. And this whole thing was stimulated by the fact that he had, before one of these uh, corporate derived indexes for an Indiana census had come out, he had organized a team to produce an index of one of the early uh, federal censuses for Indiana. And when he saw the, the corporate um, developed one come out before his team finished theirs, he was just incensed because the people did not know the handwriting, did not know the local names. And he knew that his product would be much better, but having being second into the market uh, would not have the impact uh, that it did. Um, 
And while we're on the subject of that, I just I have a stray note here that I meant to stick in earlier. Uh, it's one of the peculiar things about the two people I talked about most, about Anjou and Summerby, is that although their pedigrees uh, are, in Anjou's case, always, and in Summerby's case, frequently fabricated, they both did uh, work in transcribing records. And to the best of my knowledge, their work in that area is reliable. Um, Anjou put out a, a volume of uh, abstracts of the probate records of Ulster County, New York. Uh, and I'm not aware that anyone has impeached that. Uh, you know, I'm sure there'll be minor mistakes, but I'm not sure that anyone, I've not heard that anyone has said that that was a lousy piece of work. And when Summerby was hired not to produce a pedigree, but just to collect uh, parish register entries or something of the sort, those, to the best of my knowledge, are reliable. The problem, of course, is that given their overall reputation, you just absolutely have to check what they did. You can't accept any of that on uh, on face value. Okay. So is there any situation where it is okay to rely on a transcription and, and not go for the original? Judy? I don't think there's any... Any way that a that a genealogist can feel confident that a transcription or an abstract prepared by somebody else is going to be as good a job as you can do. We simply can't ever rely on somebody else's work. So I think the answer is no that reasonably exhaustive research that we're required to do as genealogists requires us to go for the original when it is possible to get it. And Bob, do you have anything to add? Uh, I would just add one caveat, uh, which comes from a practical basis, and that is I would say that it depends on the size of your project and how central a given record is to the to the main point that you're dealing with. Um, I think you know if you're if you're doing a monstrous genealogy, um, you know of all the descendants of an immigrant or something like that. Um, I don't know. It's always possible to to check every original source for the parents of the spouse of this and that and so on. And sometimes you have to rely. I'm not saying you have to rely. It depends on how much time you have and, and the size of the project. Um, and that's why, uh, in my own work, um, in doing the sketches in the Great Migration Study Project, um, I frequently cite articles by other genealogists that I that I uh, uh, respect and and know their reputation. But the point is that you, it's not that you have failed to to look at the original, but the, as long as you, in my estimation, as long as you cite the source that you got it from, even if it's not an original source then someone else can challenge you and check your work. It's just it's the business of, of not stating any source whatsoever. But if it's if it's a small project or if it's the central point of the of the problem you're attacking, then yes, you absolutely must uh, attack the original sources. It comes down to time and size of the project in my estimation. Okay. All right. And then how about forgery? And uh, you know, we th- I I think of forgery in in terms of art or, or you know something something along those lines is, is forgery relevant to the world of genealogy, Bob? Uh, yes, it is. Um, I don't think it's a huge problem, but it, it does occur. Um, and I would I can think of two different 
categories of things that might you might call forgeries. One is is a straight out forgery, and that is there's an example in early New Hampshire history where um, a man named John Mason was uh, received a charter for most of the land that's now in New Hampshire, or at least coastal New Hampshire. And um, he died uh, within a year or two of getting that charter, and New Hampshire history developed along different courses. And then um, this was in, 16, in the 1630s. And then about 60 years later, uh, a number of his descendants uh, decided that they that New Hampshire belonged to them because of this charter from early in the 17th century. And so they started some, some court cases on this. And um, there's a, a wealth of documents from the 1690s and 1700s, uh, I'm sorry, that were filed in court in the 1690s and 1700s, some of them dating to the 1630s, that um, impinge on this claim. And uh, Walter Goodwin Davis and some of his associates in in Maine and, and New Hampshire genealogy uh, were able to 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 uh, show definitively that about half the documents in this bundle were uh, forged documents from the 1690s, attempting to support this claim from the 1630s. Um, and because they were done so close to the time, um, they have you know, the same paper. The handwriting isn't that different. Blah blah blah. And uh, but uh, there are there are still many claims out there. There's one of the one of the documents was a list of of workmen who were uh, supposed to be in New Hampshire in 1630, and uh, you'll still see citations that's saying that so and so was in New Hampshire by 1630 based on this forged list, and it's just not so. Um, there's a different category of documents that that um, are invented, but um, are not necessarily forgeries in the sense, in the legal sense that I just described. And those are, um, uh, well, a famous example is the Horn Papers, um, set of three volumes that were published in 1945 on the um, southeast Pennsylvania, the Monongahela region, and so on, which is a very, very difficult area to research in. The records are very limited. And uh, the first volume is a set of records, court records, early court records for this period. And then the second volume is pedigrees based on those court records. And the third volume is land records. And uh, these volumes very soon um, raised suspicions. And it turned out that the third volume was perfectly good abstracts of land records, um, of both federal and, and local land records. But the first volume, the court records, were, were invented. They were someone's imagination. And the team of historians and genealogists that examined these records came to the conclusion that these were not created in to, to um, try to support any claim like the Masons had or something, that it was just someone in the mid-19th century who decided to write something almost like a novel in the form of court records, if you can imagine such a thing, for the, for the amusement of his family. And then someone found it years later and published it as if it were real. And I've encountered this in New England. There's a, a volume that purports to be a journal of early Lynn, Massachusetts history by a man with the clearly invented name of Obadiah Oldpath, um, which, you, again, you'll still see people citing it. But it's just someone's fictionalized history of early Lynn. Um, and uh, so I don't know. Does that constitute forgery? It's certainly fake. Um, but, again, it was done for someone's amusement and not to in support of a legal claim. So there are 
things like that out there, but they're in the in the case of the uh, fictionalized things, they're really pretty easy to to identify. Um, but I don't find that the forged documents are a huge huge impact on genealogical research. Okay, and Judy, do you have anything to add? Just that I think if we will all make the effort when it is possible, and I do realize there are some circumstances where it's not, but to try to get back to those original sources, we're going to avoid almost all of the problems that we run into as genealogists because we'll credit our sources, we'll be doing our own analysis, and we may bring some thoughts to bear on these records and some viewpoints that haven't been brought to bear on them before. And I think it's going to advance genealogy as a whole. So if, if we do our jobs and work to standards, most of these issues will disappear. Okay. All right. And then uh, the last uh, thing linking to plagiarism and uh, fabrication, copyright infringement. And Judy, I'll have you just briefly uh, tell us how that links to the two. Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is that copyright is a legal protection given by the legal system to the creators of, of materials like books and articles and photographs and artworks for a limited period of time. Yes, it's a very long period of time, but it, it does still end at some point. So this is a legal construct where the law will impose consequences if we violate somebody else's copyright in their original material. Plagiarism, you can plagiarize without violating copyright. I mean, it, it, Dickens's work is now out of copyright. It's been published for a very long time. But if I begin a piece of my work saying it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, and I don't credit Dickens, I'm still plagiarizing even though I'm not violating copyright. The flip side of that is that I can take Bob's work, his book, Elements of Genealogical Analysis, and quote it in its entirety. And even if I credit him and say where I got it, it's still a copyright violation, even though it's not plagiarism. So you can plagiarize without violating copyright, and you can violate copyright, copyright without plagiarizing. So we need to be careful on all counts. Okay. And Bob, do you have anything to add? Uh, no. Well, I'd just like to ask Judy a question. A, a, a point uh, occurred to me here, and I, the concept of, of fair use. I know I've had uh, some time ago a couple of genealogical colleagues of mine uh, uh, complained about that just quoting from someone else's work, even with a citation, they, they objected to. And, of course, this comes up more frequently in writing a book review than in doing an article and so on. But I'd like Judy to just comment on the concept of fair use in this context. Yeah. Fair use is a, is a statutory provision in, in American law. It's called fair dealing outside of the United States, and it's a four-part test that's set up in the federal statute 
Anybody who's looking for a citation, you can get it at 17 United States Code, Section 107. And it basically says, you know, first of all, what, what are you doing with this bit? Are you doing it for um, education or are you putting it on a T-shirt and selling it at the beach for commercial purposes? How much of the original material are you using? What kind of original material is it? And what's the impact on the commercial value of what it is you're copying? So, we, you know, a lot of us were taught when we were in school that if you're copying more than three paragraphs or three sentences or 10% or some other mathematical equation that all we have to do is stay within the numbers and we're fine. Unfortunately, that's not the case. There, there really isn't any magic formula that we can apply and, and say, okay, this is fair use. In general, small portions properly placed into quotations and cited can be used for scholarship and commentary, journalism, and research, all of the kinds of things that we do as genealogists. Where we've got to be careful is not taking too much. Um, and what constitutes too much is a judgment call and a balancing act. So we need to be careful and cautious. And the really easy way around this is ask permission. Anytime we're not sure, ask the author. You know, I know that Bob is a published author and I write a blog. Anytime a genealogist or a genealogical society asks me for permission to reuse, I almost always say yes. But boy, do I like being asked. Thank you. Bob, does that answer your question? Yes, it does. <laughs> All right. And then I have, have one more question to wrap this up, and I'm thinking from uh, a, a creator point of view um, and writing, and I'm going to give an example. So I, I wrote a thesis in college, and I had an advisor, and so I presented my, uh, my thesis to him uh, periodically, and he read it, and he said, you need to cite your sources for some of these ideas. And I looked at him and thought, what are you talking about? I'm the source. You know, I, I didn't use anybody else's work to write these things. And he told me that, that basically the foremost authority on William Faulkner, and that's who I was writing about, had already written these ideas in a book. And he told me that if I did not cite this authority, um, I would be considered uh, to be plagiarizing this person's work. So I went back, I pulled, I got the book, I read the book, and then I proceeded to cite uh, the ideas that I had in my thesis according to what this authority had. Um, I was a little uh, angry that I had to go back and, and do that because it's like, but, but no, this, these are my ideas. <laughs> and, and then I, I realized uh, I need to make sure that I'm not plagiarizing. Uh, so it, this was an unintentional plagiarizing. Um, so, Judy, my, my question to you is, you know, how, you know, how can we circumvent this? Well, you know, 
Judy? I think we lost you. Sounds like it. And she still, I actually still have her connected. Nope, I don't have her connected. So we're going to add her. We'll be calling her right now. Totally. Hmm. You have reached seven three two six three. I'm going to try again. And I will um, delete this out. I don't think we're going to get connected. Nope. So, Bob, do you have... Let's see if I can stop. You have reached call. seven, three, two. Nope. I don't want that to air. Right. Okay. All right. Bob, so do you have a, an answer for that question? Uh, no, I don't. That's that's outside my area of expertise, I'm afraid. <laughs> you, okay. you, you were certainly correct in asking Judy that question and not me. <laughs> So, okay, but I would right, be equally, so, I would be equally frustrated with you if I were in the same situation. I would have to say. <laughs> yeah, and and then and then after it was done, I thought, well, wait a minute, I I, I had the same ideas as the foremost authority on William Faulkner, so I I actually was in the end, I was uh, I was pleased with that. Right. So, um, Bob, we are are going to end our show. Is there anything else you would like to add uh, that that you haven't uh, added? No, I think we've covered the ground pretty well, and I think this has been a very interesting, uh, very interesting discussion. All right, so, I think I so hope, too. Yeah. Go ahead. No, that was all. Okay. All right, and we'll end our show uh, since I, I just have you. Who Who is your favorite ancestor? Who is my favorite ancestor? Uh, it is a very unusual guy by the name of Thomas Mort, uh, Norton, and I wrote I wrote about him in the. the the genealogist uh, in under historical ancestors. He was the father of Walter Norton, who was my New England immigrant. Thomas Norton was a um, top functionary in Elizabethan government in the 1560s and 70s, and he's famous for two things, um, which are quite at odds with one another. He was um, one of the great scourges of the Roman Catholics under Elizabeth, and in fact, he wrote a pamphlet in support of torture. I can't say I'm proud of that, but he did it. But the other thing he did uh, was he was a co-author of the first um, play in blank verse, a thing called uh, Gorboduc. It was a play that was um, staged in, 
in the 1560s to encourage Queen Elizabeth to marry and provide an heir to the throne. But it is certainly not of the quality of William Shakespeare or Christopher Marlowe, but it is uh, the first of that type of, uh, of playwriting and so on. So he was a, a man of sort of second importance in Elizabethan government and a man with some good things to his credit and bad things to his credit and a very interesting man. Oh, he sounds very interesting. So, Bob, thank you so much, and I'm going to thank Judy as well uh, through through the uh, airwaves uh, for joining right. us today. As a, it's been a very fascinating show, and I appreciate uh, you and Judy coming on. Great. Thank you. All right. And uh, this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Have a good day. Unforgettable.